But I think that at some point you have to reconcile with your fear of failure because it can be all consuming. It can make you feel like you just do not deserve to move forward. And if you are someone who is ambitious, who believes that they are worth all the great experiences, then you have to accept that when the fear of failure shows up, it is normal, but it is your job as a person with agency to say, this is not exclusive to me. This is perhaps an opportunity. Failure sometimes is the point. And I'm gonna take with me the learnings from this failure to the next thing. I'm already on the train. Oh, and I listened to Call Me Maybe for the first time in a long time the other day. And I was like, damn, this song's still, yeah, it's a bop. It's a nut. She does not, she doesn't produce anything but bops. If it, we can keep this. If you are sleeping on Carly Rae Jepsen, I'm sorry. What are you doing? I mean, cut to the feeling. I really, 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 really like you. Oh, Run Away With Me, arguably her best song. Hold on, I'm going to the catalog. No Drug Like Me. Run away with me. It's so good. What are some of the other ones? All of emotion. Emotions are great. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) Kristen's just like, you have 12 minutes before your next call. And I'm like, before I introduce Farnoosh, we're going to talk about Carly Rae Jepsen. Oh, Boy Problems. It never charted. It was a great song. Oh, oh, and I didn't just come here to dance. Another great song. But yeah, run away with me. Oh, an emotion. I'm literally going to listen to emotion after this. Boom, 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 boom. It's so good. Carly Rae Jepsen. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. I am so excited to see you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being Financial Feminist. We hope you enjoy this lovely episode with one of my friends and fellow finance experts, Farnoosh Sharabi. She is absolutely amazing. Before we get into that, happy spoopy season to all who celebrate. There is, uh, I just love fall. It is my favorite season. Halloween is one of my favorite holidays. Fun fact, I used to dress up in a coordinated costume with my father. Yes, it was adorable. We started this when I was probably nine or 10 years old. My dad has the very specific belief when it comes to Halloween that you should not buy a costume. And anybody who buys a costume is fucking cheating. So he would hand make his costume. He would go to like Value Village and get all of the things together. So One year, he went as Shrek. He painted his entire body green. There was green paint in my Nana's bathroom for years after that because he got ready there. He also went as SpongeBob, and he literally bought the furniture foam and put one piece on his front and one piece on his back and then tied it together with a belt, and then he couldn't see, so I led him around the whole night. And we started coordinating costumes when he was Napoleon Dynamite and I was Pedro. And we have the photo somewhere. Maybe we'll post them on social. It was adorable. There was one year we went as mimes. And so you can't say trick or treat. So I had a sign that said trick or treat. One year we went as Kiss, the band Kiss. That was great. We dressed up and we stuck our tongues out and we painted our faces and it was fantastic. And without getting too emotional, it's still one of my favorite memories of all of my childhood was my dad and I coordinating costumes and dressing up together. And he would always take it really seriously. And he was always just the best girl dad. So yeah. Okay. I'm going to really cry now if I keep going, but that's why I love Halloween. Halloween is just lovely. And especially with all of the little kids who have their little cute costumes and they get so excited. Candy's great. And just welcome to spoopy season, everybody. 
To tie it back into the episode, though, there is nothing spookier and more haunting than anxiety, (laughs) and specifically anxiety with your finances. Couple stats about financial anxiety. In April of 2023, 52% of U.S. adults said money had a negative impact on their mental health, including causing stress. And, not shocking, women are more likely to experience financial stress than men. 56% of women said money had a negative effect on their mental health compared to 47% of men. And we certainly see this in our audience as financial anxiety is one of these like main comments we see across our social media, across our community. So we are here bringing on fellow finance expert Farnoosh Chirabi to talk about her brand new book, A Healthy State of Panic. Farnoosh Chirabi is one of America's leading personal finance experts. She is the host of the award-winning podcast that I have been on twice called So Money that has earned over 30 million downloads. She is a sought-after speaker and author of multiple books. Her next is entitled A Healthy State of Panic, part memoir, part guidebook on how fear can be a superpower to achieve true wealth and career success. Along with being featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Time Magazine, Farnoosh has appeared frequently on Today, Good Morning America, and more. She is a graduate of Pennsylvania State University with a degree in finance and holds a master's degree from the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. In this episode, we get into the different types of fears that exist, not only around finances, but also around careers and our relationships, why sometimes fear can actually be a healthy thing and not something to avoid at all costs, where some of these common fears may be holding you back, and a bunch more. This is one of my favorite episodes we've done in a minute. Farnoosh is not only a friend, but also just so wise and is just a wealth of knowledge, pun intended, about everything related to money, but specifically about how to harness all of these emotions that we might label as negative to actually be beneficial in our life. So let's go ahead and get into it. But first, a word from our sponsors. We are supported by State Farm. If you have insurance for your home, your health, and your car, why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners I know think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but also I know for me, my business feels like my baby and I want to make sure all of my hard work and my team members are protected. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. One of the must-to-dos at the beginning of starting a business is getting a website because how can people find you? How can people find your products or your services if you don't have a website? This was me in 2016. I was wondering where to turn. I'm not a coder. What do I do? And I turned to Squarespace. I love Squarespace's tools like their email campaigns for you to be able to drive sales and engage your audience, analytics to see where people are coming from and what they're buying, and blogging tools to be able to share stories and photos and videos and updates. I have used Squarespace, like I said, since 2016, and they've been a huge impact in the business of Her First 100K and impacting you all in giving you financial advice. And frankly, I couldn't have run my business without them. You don't have to know anything about how to code in order to build a beautiful website. Trust me, I don't. And Squarespace makes it super easy and very painless. Head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ffpod to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
I don't know if I've seen you in pink. You look very Barbie today. My backdrop is so dark and gloomy that I was like, I need to wear something bright. Otherwise, it's going to be very sad. It looks good on you. Were you the person who like was very anti-pink? Because that was me for a long time was I was very anti-pink. I was. I mean, look, I spent my 20s in New York and my 30s. Pink was not my go-to ever. Color was not my go-to ever. I was like black, navy blue, (laughs) white. And then I discovered patterns and color. And I think it just coincided also with me getting like happier in life. So (laughs) feeling like things were working out. And I was like, I think I feel like a little pattern today. I think it was just, it comes with also just experimenting. I don't know. I had some pretty cool fly women role models and they were very into like style. And I didn't have any money though. I was like, once those things fall into place, once you have the money and the attitude, then I think you, you know, (laughs) you go for the jewel tones. Totally. I'm starting to reevaluate after you said that because I wear a lot of black because I feel like that's the cool like Parisian girl vibe thing to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have very little patterns actually now that I think about it. Oh, you should just go for it. Like Diane von Furstenberg does some fun patterns. She was my first, she was like my gateway. Oh, no, she's great. There's, what is that? Um, It's in... Chelsea. Yeah, it's in Meatpacking District. Have you been there? And it's yeah. like a whole mural of like inspiring women. It's really yeah. cool. Yeah. I love it. I used to work right around the corner at Chelsea Market. Yep. Really close. We're just so excited to have you. You and I have been frequent collaborators and you've been such a mentor to me in my work. Couldn't do the work that I do without you paving the way. I would love to ask you a question that I ask all of our finance experts who come on the show, which is what is your first money memory? What is the first time you remember thinking about money? Wow. Well, so many memories. I mean, I had an abnormal amount of money memories. I think growing up as a kid, my parents are Middle Eastern and immigrants and they shared all of it with me. I was an only child for the first 10, 11 years of my life too. So it was like the three of us and we were the three musketeers, three money musketeers. And I got to see when my mother for the first time, I think I was like five or six years old, she took me to Jordan Marsh, which is, well, I think it's now Macy's as all the department stores at one point consolidated. We lived in Worcester, Massachusetts. And so Jordan Marsh was our big department store and she would go there sometimes and pay off her Jordan Marsh credit card. And I was like, why are we at this counter for what seems like forever? Why, you know, this is before you could pay your bills online. And I guess we weren't affording any stamps back then. So we would just go to Jordan Marsh and pay off the statement. And she'd explain to me that, you know, this is because we bought, you know, back to school clothes or whatever, and now I'm paying the bill. And then there was the layoff counter at TJ Maxx. So with my mom, it was a lot of memories of shopping and paying off debt, but always paying off the debt. You know, that was important. And I I got to witness that and she explained it to me. I think just also the memories of growing up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which which then and still is a very working class city in America, really hard workers in Worcester and diversity. And I, I remember going to school with kids who didn't have much And it showed in the clothing that they wore and the lunches that they were eating. And I'm so grateful for all of those experiences. That's why I've chosen to live in the city, for example, for as long as I did with my kids. I wanted them to at least see that everybody lives differently. Even in the suburbs, I chose it specifically because of all the suburbs I could have lived in in New Jersey, it has probably the highest diversity uh, ratio. So economic, social, political, all of it. I think that for me was a gift 
And maybe my parents wouldn't have chosen Worcester readily, but it was where we landed. And I don't know if I would have the appreciation that I do today and the empathy that I have today if it wasn't for those early days in Worcester. Well, and what you mentioned that I want to explore more is I know from your story that your family immigrated to the U.S. from Iran in the 1970s. So how does your experience immigrating affect how they taught you about money, what they taught you about money, and just your general experience of money management coming into a completely different country in a different, really a different world. Yeah. I was very lucky to be born here. It was just, just so much luck has played a role in my life. And I think that on the one hand, my parents taught me a lot of the important steps that we should all think about money, you know, paying off your debt, spending within your means. But I think that they always had this appreciation for the fact that life could always turn on you in a dime. Like nothing is guaranteed. Hard work is important, but you also have to be prepared for a lot of uncertainty in your life. I mean, they emigrated here in the late seventies from Iran with the backdrop of a revolution happening in their home country. So they're very, very familiar with risk and uncertainty. And that was a big part of, I think, part of the value system that I was raised with. It was, yes, on the one hand, kind of walk the straight and narrow, get the good grades, work hard, but also prepare for the worst. Always know that nobody cares more about your money than you. Nobody cares more about your success than you. And it's not because people are out to get you or because people are scheming or that people don't love you. It's just that money is very personal. And your success is very personal. Your definition of success is very personal. And of course, you should be the first person to care about that and be the biggest advocate for that. And I am so grateful for that message because I actually wrote an op-ed about this, just how millennials and Gen Zers today, they were told by their parents, work hard, go to college, everything should work out. Why shouldn't it? I mean, it worked for them by and large. And I think that's not enough. You know, it's not enough to just say, go do all these things that worked for people 50 years ago. <laughs> In fact, I think that's pretty problematic, you know, to think that that's going to work out equally. And I think along the way, you should also be telling your, your children, your loved ones that having a sense of entitlement is only a recipe for disappointment. Yes, there are some things that we know have worked for others in the past and, if you can go to college and come out debt-free, please go for it. But it's not the only way and it's not necessarily the way that's going to lead to your financial success or your career success. You have to be strategic. You have to be creative. You have to get uncomfortable. You have to have a plan B, C, D, E, F, G. And my parents had all of that and their road to now being where they are, which is homeowners, able to retire, accomplishing the quote unquote American dream was not a straight path, but I watched it all, the zigzags, the ups and downs. And that for me was more of an education on how to be and how to live with your money than any textbook could have taught me. One of my other favorite things about you, and I just want you to talk about it briefly, and then we'll get to the the more meaty financial and panic questions, <laughs> is that you're also a stand-up comedian. Oh. Talk to me about oh God, that, because that's my favorite, my favorite little fun fact about you. Okay, well, that's a huge title that you just gave me. I mean, I think I would say that I'm a amateur stand-up comedian wannabe. I took a stand-up comedy class in 2018. It was this boot camp course, which was so much fun. And then at the culmination of that, they had us 
perform in front of a warm audience of friends and family. So it wasn't like I was going into swim with sharks, but it was so much fun. And I got to live a childhood dream of performing on stage, making people laugh. And I don't know, I caught a bug and I started to perform a little bit more throughout the year. I got the chance to perform at Caroline's and a few more times at Gotham Comedy in Chelsea. And I think that while maybe a little part of me was wishing that it would kind of take on a life of its own and I don't know, take me to the stars and maybe a Netflix special. But truthfully, like the economics of stand-up comedy are terrible. 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 Awful. Just awful. Like I'm spoiled, I guess. Like I don't want to leave my house at 11 p.m. to go make $13 telling jokes in front of drunk people. Like I just don't want to do that. And I don't think you have to. I think that the pandemic actually made it so so many talented people could get discovered on their own on social media and then still like make it in the big leagues. And they weren't doing the sort of smoke filled comedy sellers, which look, I think there's a lot to gain from being in front of a live audience and failing and getting the laughs. But for me, for where I was in my life, this was really just pure entertainment for me and joy. I wasn't looking at it as like a career move. But I will say that when I posted the, and this is a probably longer answer than you were going for, but I'm going to tie a bow. Uh, on this story, which will relate to the next thing, which we'll talk about, which is the book. But I posted one of my clips on social media from, I think it was Caroline's or one of the events. My stand-up material is very much what is in the book, where I talk about growing up the daughter of immigrants and the irony of my parents being these risk takers and then coming here and then letting me do absolutely nothing. (laughs) Like their recipe for success was stay home. That was a lot of my act but a lot of my truth. And a literary agent reached out and said, do you have more of this material? It's so funny. And I said, yeah, sure. But do you mean like written down? You know, because I just thought, well, I, I lived this. So the material is abundant. And she said, yeah, uh, please start writing if you want. I would love to look at your your stories and see where maybe we could take this professionally in terms of a book. And so those stories I began to write about late 2018 all during the pandemic as well. And now there's a book called A Healthy State of Panic, which is the culmination of not just those comedy stories, those comedic stories, but really the 43 plus years I've lived walking this planet and experiencing fear and somehow still being okay. And I think that's what I want to talk about in the book, which is that you can be afraid and still really successful. You can be fearful and fulfilled, scared and smart. Both can live in harmony. You just made the transition I was going to make. I love this example of stand-up comedy because it feels so terrifying. I have also thought about dabbling in stand-up. I've written jokes in my head, you know? You'd be good at it. And then I think about it. You know, I have a background in theater. A lot of our friends do. A lot of like finance experts, we have backgrounds in theater and performance. And I've thought about doing it, but it's so scary, right? It's this idea of very vulnerably getting up in front of people on a stage, which is scary for most people, period. But then talking about typically your own experience and your own experience in a way that tries to make people laugh. And to your point, your audience is drunk people and people who have literally come to just heckle you. And so one of the recurring themes of this podcast recently has been this fear of failure that holds women back from so many things. And not only the big things, you know, developing your career or potentially meeting somebody that you're going to spend the rest of your life with, like this deep fear of failure 
in regards to these big milestones. But I think also this fear of failure allows us to unfortunately miss out on so many beautiful opportunities of a life well lived. So talk to me a bit about your research and what you discovered linking this fear of failure, this fear of, you know, messing up or, or this again, state of panic that a lot of women feel and how that equates to either their happiness, their careers, et cetera. Yeah, the fear of failure is central to the book. I talk about many different types of fears in the book. The fear of failure is a big one. I also talk about the fear of uncertainty, the fear of rejection, FOMO. But the fear of failure was my longest chapter (laughs) because I've experienced many of them myself and I had a lot of stories to tell. But I think the wisdom in the fear of failure is multi-parts. One is that I find that when we fear failure, maybe it's a nudge to tell us that our standards for success are totally out of whack, that we fear failure because we'll probably fail. But what we really need to sit with is why? Why does this feel unattainable to us? And maybe it's because it's not the sort of success that we really, really want, but it's the success that we've been told we should strive for. So an example of this is when I was in my 20s working at a magazine money magazine. And I had a great experience there for the most part, but there was one day when I almost got fired and it was over a, gosh, a silly mistake I printed in the magazine. You can read it all about it in the book, but essentially was pulled aside and said, if you make another mistake, we're going to have to take your badge and that's it. And I was 23 years old. I had a master's in journalism from Columbia, an Ivy League. Are you telling me that I'm going to get fired over this one fact issue? And it wasn't the sort of like mistake that I told everybody that they should invest in crypto or something. It was like I defined dollar stores incorrectly. I said dollar stores are where you can go and everything's a dollar. And then my editor realized after the fact, after it was printed, after it was sitting in all of the dentist's office around the country, that no, not all dollar stores sell things for just a dollar. Sometimes it's $2. Sometimes it's 5 And so that dollar store mistake almost cost me my job. And when I sat with that fear of literally losing my job, that fear of failure was very literal and visceral. I called my mom and I was crying and I was walking up and down Midtown 50, I think it was like 48th street, 6th Avenue, loud, bustling New York. I'm holding my Motorola Razor phone like close to my lips so she can hear me. And I'm terrified to tell her this because I'm thinking she's going to think I'm such a loser and she's going to yell at me. And she said in Farsi, she said, ah, which means those idiots. And I said, those idiots, mom, I'm the idiot. I made the mistake. She goes, no, those idiots, they didn't fact check your work. They didn't walk you through this before it printed. Were you the only one who wrote this article and sought to print? You work there. There's a hierarchy. You fact check people's articles every single day. You're the reason so many mistakes don't happen at the magazine. Now you get the chance to write your own article and there's no safety net for you. I'm all for personal accountability. I took ownership of that mistake, but also I realized that where I was working was not exactly a place for cultivating my talents and being mentored and learning from my mistakes as opposed to you make a mistake and you're almost going to get fired. I think in your 20s, your metric for success when it comes to your career is not so much working somewhere that's going to pay you all the money. Money's important, but also a place that's going to nurture you and foster you because you only have come out of college, maybe at best, and you deserve the chance to fail. And I recognize that 
I was afraid of failing because I was misleading myself. I had misled myself to believe that being at Money Magazine and rising through the editor ranks in the magazine world was going to be the end all for me, the be all end all. And objectively, it was a very cushy role. My editor-in-chief made probably seven figures. Senior editors did very well. They had townhomes in Park Slope, and they were sending their kids to private school. So financially, it was like a cushy job back then. Maybe not so much. And so objectively, yeah, I mean, that's what I thought I wanted. And the way that that mistake was handled at that job was a sign that I need to get out of here. And I'm not going to let them fire me If anything, I'm going to kick ass. (laughs) I made sure that the next four months, five months, I delivered above and beyond. I felt like every time I got an assignment, it was a test. And by the end, they actually offered a full-time role for me to stay, but I'd already committed to another job. And that's one example of how the fear of failure showed up for me early on in my 20s and how I was able to look at it, sit with it, ask it questions like, I'm fearing failure. Why? Is it Perhaps because the room that I'm in, the job that I'm in, the success that I'm after is not actually aligned with what I want and what my values are. That's just one example. I could go on. No, that's that's fantastic. Oh, just such a great learning experience, not just for you being like, okay, I'm going to kick ass and I'm going to, you know, kind of redeem myself, but also this moment of there's so many feelings of powerlessness, I think, in your early 20s, especially in your career. And if you're in like, quote unquote, trouble, it's like, oh my God, it's something that I did as opposed to, am I in an environment that actually encourages me to learn? Mm -hmm. And I love that that became the question. The other thing we've talked about too, and I would love your thoughts on, I think a lot of women do fail, right? We all fail or they mess up or they make a mistake. And as opposed to stating a fact, which is, yep, I failed or I made a mistake. It is an identity thing. It is I am a mistake or I am a failure. And this incident becomes a defining moment in a way where now they're identifying with these feelings that that is who they are now. I didn't just fail. I am a failure. How did you differentiate that between, again, a incident that happened versus, you know, Farnoosh's identity? Boy, I mean, I grappled with this myself. I think it's really hard. It feels inextricable. Yeah, you're right. It feels like your identity. You are a failure. My best offer here is to think about Elizabeth Gilbert did this TED talk on the idea of genius. I'm going to go a little different direction here, but I think it really relates back to the concept of identifying so much with an experience, making it who you are. So she did this amazing TED talk about sort of finding your genius. And I think she said, ultimately in our culture, we have this tendency to think that when we create something beautiful, a piece of work, an art, a book, a painting, a poem, we're called a genius. And therefore it's really, really hard to sort of identify your next act. There's a lot of pressure to feel like you can perform at that genius level with your genius self again. And she said, I think the mistake is that rather than being a genius, we have to sort of think the genius sort of comes through us and is just kind of working its way through the world. And maybe we catch it by luck and by chance. When it comes to us, we work with it and we create the item, but we don't live in this zone of genius all the time. It is a moving thing. It's this ethereal energy that is something that a lot of other cultures have accepted and embraced. For some reason here in the United States, in the Western culture, we sort of feel like the genius is who you are. 
maybe it's we have just really big egos. But I think going back to this idea of failure, sort of the same thing. Failure, it comes and goes. It doesn't define who you are. It is this thing in passing. And I think it comes because it has a lot to teach you. I thank my failures. Zoe Saldana recently said on Instagram, because I think that Instagram has, the algorithm knows me so well at this point, it knows I love content on failure. But I fell upon one of her old interviews and she said, I think that my superpower more or less is that I really, really know who I am. You know, so I love the way I learn. I love the way that I choose to work. I love the way I fail. I love my failures because they teach me constantly about who I am. Again, this is, I think, an evolved mindset. I don't think that you come out from the womb, like knowing this, feeling this, believing this. But I think that at some point you have to reconcile with your fear of failure because it can be all consuming. It can make you feel like you just do not deserve to move forward. And if you are someone who is ambitious, who believes that they are worth all the great experiences, then you have to accept that when the fear of failure shows up, it is normal, but it is your job as a person with agency to say, this is not exclusive to me. This is perhaps an opportunity. Failure sometimes is the point, and I'm going to take with me the learnings from this failure to the next thing. I'm already on the train. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. The first investment we ever made in her first 100K was signing up for a Squarespace account way back in 2016. And if they were the first place I spent my hard-earned money to start my business, you know that it was a worthwhile investment. Squarespace makes making a website really easy even if you don't know how to code, especially when you don't know how to code. You can use their blogging tools to be able to communicate effectively to your audience with stories, photos, videos. You can also use your online store to sell products like your merch or physical or digital products. You can also use their analytic tools to figure out how to grow your business, where are people coming from, how long are they staying. So you can build a marketing strategy based on some of the top keywords or most popular products and your content. Head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your brand new website, go to squarespace.com slash ffpod to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. If you're a business owner, you know that you have a million things to think about all of the time. You've got your team that's buried with a bunch of work. It's taking forever to figure out where your invoices are coming from. And getting to one source of truth about your data is like pulling teeth. So if this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And finally, number one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margin. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ffpod. That's netsuite.com slash ffpod to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash ffpod. That is so wise. I love Liz Gilbert too. I love everything out of that woman's mouth. And yeah, that TED talk is so incredible. With this fear in general, right? You have a book out called A Healthy State of Panic. Your book breaks down 
the nine types of fears. We don't have to go through all of them, but can you talk about a few of the common ones and maybe walk through your advice for them? So the book tackles nine big fears. It's not a thorough anthology on fear, but I thought it was important to distill fear. We often talk about fear as this monolith, this four-letter word monolith. And I think that in order to really feel that agency that I want us to all have, with fear and to feel empowered, we have to be able to call it out specifically. And that's because when you do that, you know what the tools then are. And the book tells you if you're, for example, feeling the fear of rejection versus the fear of money versus the fear of failure, there are different wisdoms to extract. There are different things to consider, mindsets, frameworks that are specific or not exclusive, but patterned with that fear. As I say, a lot of these fears, like they buddy up sometimes. Sometimes you're not exclusively feeling the fear of failure. Sometimes it's failure and rejection and money. Sometimes it's this beautiful cocktail. But I wanted to identify them specifically, the ones at least I have definitely experienced that I think to some extent are universal. And the way I designed it in the book is to start with the ones that we tend to experience earlier in life. And then as we grow up and mature and life evolves and our plates get fuller, that then we start to really experience the more mature fears. So we start with things like the fear of rejection and loneliness, two things that I grapple with a lot in those early days, those early school years of being constantly the new girl, constantly having to introduce myself to a room full of strangers and immediately having to read the room, immediately having to put my guard up and not loving that. And then there's FOMO, which I mean, we've already named it once in this podcast. It's sort of modern day fear, but again, one that I think shows up as we engage with social media and socialize. And then we get into uncertainty and failure and money, which, you know, I think at this point you can tell we're kind of getting older. We're getting to those years where the stakes are getting higher. Then of course, the fear of endings, which was a very hard chapter to write because it's gutting, you know, to think about all the bad endings or even the good endings, but they're still endings and they're bittersweet. But the ending of a relationship, the ending of a life, yours, someone you love, the ending of something you were really excited about happening and then it doesn't. And then the last chapter is the fear of losing your freedom. And that's not so much the fear of, let's say, God forbid, losing our democracy, which I know is hanging by a thread, but the personal freedoms that we do have at least some control over pursuing. And I think that this is a very individual chapter where we may all understand what this fear is, but in terms of what we deem personally important to us, what are our hierarchy of personal freedoms, it's very, very unique and very personal. And so part of the exercise of that chapter is figuring out what are the important freedoms, personal freedoms that are non-negotiable for you and to get really specific about that. Uh, Because when you fear those things, then they catalyze you, they mobilize you to actually go do the thing. I remember interviewing a woman who had just gotten divorced in the pandemic, four children, jobless, had applied to 50 jobs, kept getting rejected, was living in her mother's one bedroom with all of her children sleeping in one bed. And the night that she decided to listen to her fear is when her life changed for the better. She said to me, Farnoosh, I sat at night once my kids were all asleep, staring at them, crying, realizing just how scared I was. And I wasn't so much scared about today, but I was scared about a year from now still being in this situation. 
for her, there was a real loss of potential freedom, right? Of being able to mother her children the way that she wanted, of having some autonomy, financial autonomy. And that fear, she said, catalyzed her. The next day, she took her stimulus check, which had come in the mail, used it to buy some equipment. She started going online. She was an expert in sales and marketing and fundraising and started to amass a very loyal following. And her goal was to make about $10,000 a month, which sounded high to me, but I mean, listen, this woman's ambitious. And she ended up crossing seven figures in the first year. And fear was her constant friend during those 12 months. I just love that story. I think for me, what you just said was the fear of endings as well. My biggest fear is death by far. (laughs) It holds us back from so many things. And to your point, how you manage them and if you're mindful of them completely changes your view on them. Yeah, that is one conversation for my therapist, but conversation for another time about how to manage that fear. Can we talk about the fears that people have around money specifically? What does that look like? What does that show up as? And you and I have both talked at various times about the uncomfortability of, of course, talking about money, but also like sharing our net worth, sharing our salary. I'd love to dive into that because some of the comments we get in response to like me sometimes are just like, you say you're transparent, but now you won't share anymore. How have you navigated that? We live in a world where we pray at the altar of transparency (laughs) and bearing it all and no boundaries. I mean, I dedicated a whole chapter to the fear of exposure. I think you are very brave for even sharing what you share, Tori. I don't do much sharing on that front. And it's not because I'm embarrassed or trying to be secretive. I I guess I do share, but I share in the rooms that I find safer for me. Well, it is a safety thing, especially for women. Like I was on another podcast about this. I used to literally post like screenshots of like my personal capital login of like, this is exactly how much money I have in my bank account. And unfortunately, the very thing that you and I are trying to fight against, which is this discomfort when women pursue and have wealth is the very thing that I am concerned about. And the reason I am not as fully transparent as I think I was maybe five years ago when I wasn't as public of a person. I applaud that. I think, like I say, on the very first page of A Healthy State of Panic, I've known the world's a scary place for a long time. And I'm reminded of that every day when I work with people and their money, when I'm talking about my own money. You're right that there is a fine line between sharing and being helpful and being constructive and having it ricochet and backfire and, and getting penalized. And it's not your fault. But again, the world is not always very inviting. But specifically about the fear of money, that chapter really encompasses so many of the trepidations that we have around money. Unlike a lot of the other chapters that capture the fear of sort of a state of being or a state of mind like loneliness or rejection, money is not a state of anything. It's just a tool. And yet we have so much fear. We give it so much power. And so the first exercise, whether it's losing your investments, losing your job, the fear of starting a conversation with a partner over money because you're afraid it's going to blow up and you'll split up, the fear of addressing your debt, your bills, We go all of the places in that chapter, but I think that the first step when that fear shows up is to have a conversation with it and ask it this, where did you come from? Who brought you here? You know, I think that how we feel about money, the fear specifically that we feel around money, there's a story there. 
And it is our job to unearth that story because again, money is just a tool. So if you are afraid of money, it is because you are afraid of your relationship with money and the relationship runs deep. And so tracing it back to the root of where you first caught that fear is so important. Even if you decide that that fear is legit or you decide it's not, that journey is one of the most powerful things you can do for yourself because what you're essentially doing is going on a journey, getting closer to who you are, the stories that you have kept going and going for all these years, the people that are influencing you. And at the end of that journey, the goal is to figure out whether or not you want to rewrite that fear narrative so that you can go and do the thing that you actually do want to do. I was afraid for a very long time of earning more money. That sounds nuts saying that as the woman who wrote a book called When She Makes More, the breadwinner in my family, publicly talking all about this stuff. And it wasn't that I, I don't want to be financially independent. None of that, of course. But I got to a point, it was probably my mid-30s where I was exceeding my spouse's income by and large. And we had a very comfortable life. We had everything I thought we needed. And I thought, could try to push the envelope and make more money and maybe make millions of dollars. But I was afraid that that pursuit was going to cost me more than I was willing to give up. I had it in my mind that necessarily trying to make more money for me would come at the cost of having a strange relationship with my husband, not seeing my kids, and being vilified by those who loved me even, who thought, why is she... Why is she working so hard? Why is she still trying to make more money? Like, isn't it enough? I've heard that a lot, by the way, in my life. Isn't it enough for you? Isn't it enough? Which, by the way, I don't mean to stop you. We never ask men. Like, no, we no. never ask men that never. question. I like, know. Nobody goes to Elon Musk. I mean, you and me, maybe, but like the vast majority yeah. of people are not going to Elon Musk and being like, when is it enough? You know, when will it be enough? No. Um, if anything, they go, what's next for you? And my intelligent brain, Tori, was telling me like, this is nonsense. And nevertheless, here I was feeling like I couldn't play bigger because it would come at a cost. That was my fear. And then I remember because I'm a financial author and writer on one of the days I was sitting with a, a much wiser woman in personal finance, interviewing her for an article. And we got to talking about all of this, about just my own sort of hesitation. And I felt very justified in that. I was like, you know, I'm good. I didn't want to push the envelope. And, you know, again, this is the immigrant daughter in me who probably felt like trying to make more money would require taking on more risks. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to, again, like there's this expression in Farsi. I don't know if it translates that much. I think it probably does translate in English well, and it would make sense in our culture, but it's just essentially like, just sit where you are. Bishin Sarjat sit where you are, know your place, you know, like don't push your luck. Anyway, all that's going through my mind. And she said, why this woman, Barbara Hewson, whom I was interviewing, she said, what's wrong with trying to make more money? And I went through my laundry list and she's like, well, don't you want power? And I said, no, <laughs> aren't you hearing what I'm saying? I don't want power. That's disgusting. I didn't say disgusting, but I felt it. And she's like, let's unpack this. And meanwhile, I'm a 30 something year old financial expert. I should know better, but it's like the therapist, right? Has her own host of problems. And I was like, no, I just think it's not really what I'm after. I don't want power. She goes, because you're thinking of a certain flavor of power that has been depicted in the media as undesirable for most, especially women, because it's just not the power to conquer. Power is like the guy in the tower who's controlling people from above selling snake oil. 
you know, or it's the conqueror, it's the Putins of the world. And I, I said, yeah, I mean, well, that's power, right? And she goes, no, Farnoosh, power is also the power to uplift, the power to bring people together, the power to support, the power to heal. I said, oh yeah, those other powers. Yeah. Touche. So I realized, okay, I do want that. And I think that that's more my speed. And yet I still had this fear that if I tried to achieve that, it would come at a cost. And so like always, the fear when it shows up, whether it's of money or something else, it's usually trying to ask you this question, which is, what are you trying to protect? What do you want to happen so badly? Or what do you want to not have to happen so badly? And for me, it was like, I didn't want to sacrifice my time. I didn't want to feel like I was being stretched too thin. I didn't want to feel like I was neglecting my family because ultimately those things were more important to me. I'm not ashamed to say that. And so I realized that my job now was to try to figure out a way to make more money without having those other things happen. And do you know what's the first thing I did? I just raised my damn prices. There we go. <laughs> that ah. took a minute. Yeah. I was like, I'm just going to start charging more. And that doesn't require lifting a finger. That doesn't require losing time. It just requires deciding. And I challenge everybody to do that. That worked. I also hired an assistant, which was a big move for me. It was a big investment and not knowing if it would pay off. But in my mind, I was like, I'm going to hire this assistant to do the day-to-day -day stuff that is very important that needs to get addressed, the emailing, the planning. But then I suddenly, for the first time in my career, get to think big and plan big and network and get out of the office. And within months, she had earned her salary back. And I, within a couple of years, I doubled my income because I was just making this decision that, first of all, I deserve to be financially powerful and I can define that however I want. And that whatever I'm afraid of in terms of what this pursuit of trying to earn money is going to cost me, pay attention to that. Those things you care about. But the solution is not to not go make more money. The healthy solution is to figure out how to do that despite all of that. To say, okay, well, I'm still going to go make the money, but how can I do it without making these other things suffer? That is so powerful. One of the missions, of course, you know, of my work is how do we encourage women to stop playing small? All of that was just super helpful. Everybody like back it up eight minutes and listen to that again. <laughs> it was so great. Talk to me about when actually our fears are helpful for us. I'm thinking like red flags in relationships or at jobs, that gut impulse, right? We've talked about intuition and gut instincts a lot in the show. So we're talking about all of these fears as unuseful things. When is fear actually useful? So many times, red flags. I love me a red flag. Red flags have allowed me to spot who to fire, who to not be in a relationship with. I think also when you get that tingly feeling in a crowd, when someone asks you, where are you from? That's uh, all about in the fear of rejection. I think that's a loaded question. And it, what that fear is asking you to do is, Read the room. Gosh, so many times. I mean, I even think with the fear of money, when that's showing up, it's an opportunity to learn more about yourself and what you care about, as I talked about in my example. But yeah, gosh, red flags have saved me so many dollars and time and energy. I think people tell you exactly who they are if you're just willing to listen. And it's not to say that when a red flag or a what do they call it in the dating world? A yellow flag, a brown flag? I don't, <laughs> Honestly, I'm trying to remember now too. Oh my gosh. Why can't I remember? Isn't it like, her, oh, Kristen's going to come in. Thank you, Kristen. 
Beige vine. Beige. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew what it was, and then you said yeah. brown, and then in I, my head, all I could think of was brown. <laughs> and I was like, wait, that's not right. I knew it was a muted color, like, uh, not like a hot pink. Yeah, taupe. Um, taupe. Taupe. Mom. Um, totally. <laughs> so my point was, like, people will just tell you who they are. I remember being on a first date, and the guy was sweet, funny. I knew he was a little out there for me, but... I was in a phase where my one girlfriend was like, you just need to go on some dates. Like you can't just stay home. Even if you know it's not going to work out, just go and have the experience. And before the, like the bread basket came, he's like, so how much you weigh? Oh my, what? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? How much do I weigh? (laughs) I was like, I am definitely paying for this dinner. You're like, I'm about to lose 200 pounds of your dead weight. So bye. (laughs) Wow. Oh my God. I wish I had that one liner. Instead, I think I just gasped and excused myself to go into the bathroom. Oh, I have that one liner furnished because enough men have called me fat on the internet. That's how I have it, which is a whole other conversation. That's so fucked. I'm so sorry. I don't know what even prompted it. I don't even know how we got there. We had just literally sat down and anyway, so no more on that guy. But I, I just, I think we have a lot of experiences with now you're dating and I was dating back then. And it's just like, I was so afraid of talking about myself on dates, which would have been construed as talking myself up, you know, because it's not expected for a woman, a 20 something to have financial stability and can to pay for her own dinner. By the way, I pay a mortgage and I have, a, I have an awesome job. And I remember dating advice I would get from my colleagues at work, men, of course, they'd say, oh, maybe you don't tell them you own your own apartment on the first date. And I'm like, do you know that if I was a guy, I would put that in the email or in the text before I even get to the date. It would be on the profile. It is a badge of honor when you are a man. It is something to not revere when you are a woman, apparently, on the prowl. And I was just so tired of it that Ultimately, I got really okay with never getting in a long-term relationship. I was like, you know what? If this is my pool of bachelors, then I like me. I know what I want. I want to have a family. I want to have an independent, financially independent life. Like it will be okay. And you know what's so funny? As soon as I sort of reconciled with that fear of potentially always being alone, I met my husband and I don't think it's a coincidence. I think that when I decided that I wasn't going to settle and that I would be perfectly fine with never getting married, I walked into dates a totally different person. And by totally different person, I mean myself and willing to go there and willing to share because the fear of my exposing myself had just exhausted me. Yep. And I'm thankful for that exhaustion because it honestly led me to a place of just wholeness and being myself and being like, if he doesn't like it, it's okay. Financial Feminist is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. When I started Her First 100K, I knew how important it was to protect not only my business, but myself as a business owner and all current and future team members. Business insurance gave me the peace of mind I needed as we continued to grow and scale. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. 
If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. We all have that person in our life who's like password challenged. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your grandma. Maybe it's you. It's sometimes me. I'll be honest. I, you know, the sticky note reminders and the emailing your passwords and then the reusing passwords and over and over again. And maybe even the cardinal sin, which is using the word password as their password. But data breaches affect everyone and you need one password. One password combines industry leading security with award winning design to bring private, secure, and user friendly password management to everyone. Any device, anytime, One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone, Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign ins. I know I need One Password. I am a chronic reuse my passwords every single time kind of person. And I'm really excited that this can allow me to stay safe, but also not have to remember 60 different passwords and not have to log into this service that's super complicated to use. Right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ffpod. That's two free weeks at onepassword.com slash ffpod. No reason to not check it out. One, as in the number one, password.com slash ffpod. And the men that you would be attracted to are not the ones who want you to play small, right? No. That's the question I get all the time is, oh, don't you think men are going to be turned off by like how much money you have? And I'm like, who the fuck do I care? Like if you don't see me as a strong person and a strong woman and you don't want that, I don't, I'm not interested in you. And yeah, it's going to make dating harder, 100%. Or more special because you're not for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And right. <laughs> thank you. I mean, that the thing is when I when I was afraid of exposing my truth, my financial truth, my ambitions, I thought I was playing it right, but I was ultimately not getting any closer to the person that I needed to be with. I just thought I was weeding out everybody, but maybe there was a guy, you know, at some point who would have been okay with it and I just didn't assume he would be because I was given a lot of bad advice. Every aspect of showing up big in spaces, whether that's dating, your career, just for yourself, it feels so uncomfortable because we've been told our entire lives, placate others, form to fit around the situation, mm-hmm. you know, do everything you have to do to be accommodating as opposed to do what feels right for you, set your own boundaries, show up in spaces and play really big. And so, of course, that feels scary and fearful and uncomfortable because you've been told your entire life to not do it. Actively told, even by people who care about you. Like, I love my parents, but I live a very different life than they want me to lead. I live a very different life than they want because they want to keep me safe. It sounds like yours as well. Like, it's so funny of these big risks, but then it's also like, yeah, but you shouldn't take the risks, right? Because I want to keep you safe. (laughs) Right. They want to protect us. Yeah, the irony. It makes for great stand-up comedy material, <laughs> let me tell you. I encourage you. That's actually really good for me to know. I was going to say, family trauma, great. <laughs> you know, some stand-up comedy 101, how one of the best teachers I had, he said, you know, just um, make it ironic. Tell the irony, you know? And he's actually the one that helped me come up with that joke, which was like, you know, my parents moved here, traveled 6,000 miles, risked everything to take no chances, Yeah, you know? And he's like, yeah, that's funny because... It's not what you would expect. Right. Did all of these things. And then, yeah, it's play small. And yet it's every immigrant. Right. Right. <laughs> They've used up all their risk tickets. <laughs> you know, they have no more risk tickets left. 
So if I'm listening to this episode and I have something like a diagnosed anxiety disorder or something where my sense of anxiety or fear is more out of my control, I'm probably listening to this and I'm like, that's nice. That's fine. But like, that doesn't seem applicable to me. Did any of your research cover how to distinguish these fears that do feel more mindset versus maybe the ones that are actually diagnosable versus even to take it one step further, the things, again, we're talking about the society kind of expectation of playing small. I see this almost as three different things, which is one, your own bullshit that you can control, two, the things that are still your own shit, but outside of your control, and then three, all of the like systemic shit you can't control at all. I did not write this book for those of us necessarily who feel completely out of control and have probably a diagnosable disorder. I think that it's important for all of us, if we feel any degree of fear and it's holding us back and there's no breakthrough for us, that we do seek help. And this is not meant to be a solo journey by any stretch. I think for those of us who feel the external factors, that everything feels existential, absolutely should work with a professional and absolutely should know that they're not alone, that you can get help. You know, because a lot of what I lay out in the book, the work, Tori, is, you know, having self-awareness. The work is knowing that you have resources that you can utilize and by resources, I mean not just money, but your talent, your life experiences that are informing you and your maturity, your agency, your network, your community, all of that are rich resources, which when we are afraid of anything can be utilized. But if you are somebody who can't accept that yet or doesn't see that or doesn't trust that, then I think that before you read my book, you really want to work with a professional. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. It is something that uh, I like to couch all of my work with, which is this is super helpful. Also, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a therapist. You have to couple this work with deeper work typically as well. No, yeah. What is something as we close out this episode that somebody can do today as they're working through some of their fears or feeling some anxiety around making a career choice, maybe dating somebody? Is there a practice that somebody can go through to start not even overcoming their fear, but starting being more comfortable or aware of their fears? Yes. Grab a piece of paper or grab your phone and write down whatever the fear you're feeling. And really the first step is to get specific. Is it uncertainty? Is it rejection? Is it a combination? What is the outcome that you're afraid is going to surface or materialize or come to haunt you? What is the thing that you're afraid of? But then I want you to reframe it to this. Rather than this is what I'm afraid of, write down, this is actually what I'm trying to protect. Sometimes the words really, really matter, Tori, because when we use the word fear, our minds go to all these worst case scenarios. But when we say protect, which is ultimately what fear is, it's a stimulant, it's a natural, abundant resource flowing through our veins that is there to protect us from danger. But danger means different things, right? Especially in an evolved world that we're in. It used to mean literal danger of like woolly mammoths during the Stone Age. But now it's a string of bad dates or a hostile relationship or a hostile work environment. Or getting canceled by the internet. 
<laughs> I mean, who isn't terrified of that? Truly, that is the biggest fear I have other than death and eels right now is just the internet feels so scary. But quick sidebar on that. We were talking about this with some friends the other day. It's like, has anyone truly ever really been canceled? Well, that's, I have also had this conversation with friends, even the people who deserve cancellation. I'm like, Louis C.K. won a Grammy two years ago. Exactly. Like, <laughs> Exactly. All these people that they had to like disconnect from the internet for, you know, six months, they're back. They're, they've got shows, they've got brand deals, they've got millions of followers again. So it's like, we tend to forget very, very quickly. I just want to point that out. But I think the first step is to identify specifically what the fear is. Rewrite that to identify what it is that you want to protect. And I guarantee you that that exercise alone will make you maybe love yourself a little bit more remember who you are and feel more empowered to go do the thing anyway. But now you know what you want to protect. It feels more tangible to you than just this sort of existential fear. But like, no, I want to protect, for example, my savings account. I want to protect my relationship with my best friend. I want to protect my relationship with my mom. And so let that lead you to go and do the thing. But now you're being led in a way that is led by your heart and your soul and your ambitions, as opposed to what you thought it was being led by, which was fear, which can feel very stifling. That's incredibly helpful. I'll be doing some journaling tonight. <laughs> so I'll let you know how that goes. Farnoosh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your friendship. Where can people find more about you? Well, you can learn more about the book at a healthy state of You can check me out on So Money, my thrice a week podcast. That's a word that the New York Times used. So I don't use that word a lot, but it's a three times a week podcast. So <laughs> thrice weekly. Thrice weekly. <laughs> Sounds fancier than it is. And Instagram. I don't, I'm not the TikTok star that you are. I've tried. I will say it's, it's, it's a beast of its own making. It's crazy. It's hard. It's hard, but it's okay. I like Instagram a lot. I'm having fun there. So let's hang out. Cool. Thank you for being here. Thank you again to Farnoosh for joining us. You can check out her book, A Healthy State of Panic, at your favorite bookstore. You can also subscribe to So Money, her award-winning money podcast, wherever you're listening right now. Thank you for being here, Financial Feminists. I hope you have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Financial Feminist, a Her First 100K podcast. Financial Feminist is hosted by me, Tori Dunlap, produced by Kristen Fields, associate producer, Tamisha Grant, Marketing and Administration by Karina Patel, Sophia Cohen, Khalil Dumas, Elizabeth McCumber, Beth Bowen, Amanda LaFew, Masha Bakhmikieva, Kaylin Sprinkle, Samaya Molokurio, and Harvey Carlson. Research by Ariel Johnson, audio engineering by Alyssa Medcalf, promotional graphics by Mary Stratton, photography by Sarah Wolf, and theme music by Jonah Cohen Sound. A huge thanks to the entire Her First 100K team and community for supporting the show. For more information about Financial Feminist, Her First 100K, our guests, and episode show notes, visit financialfeministpodcast.com. This podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. You can use Squarespace's online store, their digital downloads, their analytics, their blogging tools to be able to serve your audience in the best way possible. Head on over to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ffpod to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.